Today's sponsor is Headspace. You slept every night of your life, so you should be pretty good at it by now, right? Unfortunately, many of us don't get the quality sleep that we need and could use a little bit of help, and that's where Headspace has got you covered. It's your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. And while they have meditations devoted to helping you reduce stress and increase your overall sense of well-being, they have an entire library of sleep stories, sleep music, and other sleep sounds that can help you get the quality sleep you desperately need. And for busy lifestyles, they have what's called wind downs. It's meditations and breathing exercises that are as short as three minutes so they can fit into anybody's schedule. I personally use Headspace myself. I've tried out some of the sleep stuff. It actually works. Like to me, it actually makes a difference. So Headspace, it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews. That's a lot. And over 60 million downloads. Try it today for free and start sleeping soundly. So right now, our listeners get 30% off Headspace's entire library of meditations. Just go to headspace.com slash sleep pod for 30% off your subscription, but only until May 12th. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash sleep pod today. In the online business space, Pat, this happens all the time. Is What happens is someone comes in and says, look, jobs are an inefficient way to make a living. We all nod our heads. That's true. They're, they're horrible time and money investments. So let's start a business. And you keep going down the path. The problem is, is that jobs do so much more for us. And let's use the word career. than just give us money. That's Dean Andrews from tropicalmba.com. A friend of mine for over a decade now, actually, somebody who had recently done something in his business that he kind of regretted. And we're going to talk all about that today. And hopefully you'll be able to have these important conversations with yourself now so you don't have these similar feelings and thoughts later. So before we get to that, let's cue the music. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's learning to play the guitar from scratch and loving every minute of it. Pat Flynn. Thank you for joining me today in session 329 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people too. And I'm thankful that you are here with me and our guest, Dan Andrews, today. Dan, uh, he and I were actually back in the day when I started out. We were both members of the Internet Business Mastery Academy. That's where I got to know him and his amazing business overseas, helping in the valet industry, he had built this million-dollar business, and it was good to catch up with him, although I didn't realize to the extent at which he had taken a direction that he didn't want to go down, and we're going to talk all about that, all that today. We're going to unpack the lessons learned so that you don't go through the same thing, too. If you have a business partner, this may be one of those episodes that you might want to listen with them or suggest they listen to as well, and if you're by yourself, then You'd have these conversations with yourself, obviously. But anyway, thank you so much. Let's just dive right in. Dan, what's up, man? Welcome back uh, to the SPA podcast. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for giving me a ring. Yeah, man. It's been it's been a while. It's it's been a long time actually since we've uh, last chatted. I'm glad we connected actually through Twitter direct messages because you've got some interesting stuff that has happened since. So. What you're ever- saying, Pat, I, I'm pretty sure you were in my first mastermind, like maybe even before I knew what a mastermind was. We back remember in, uh, this. in Internet Business Mastery days, right? That's right. Yeah. In San Diego. You guys were like the first real internet people I ever met. Were you at the table at Panera Bread in Mara Mesa when I kind of 
showed up as this like nerdy, like I have no idea what I'm doing here person. I remember, I remember when you, uh, you were mulling over whether or not to do the income reports and you were like, I'm oh, okay. going to do this. Yeah. So the, <laughs> that was the moment. This was I after. Think. Yeah. Okay. That's right. We played, we played Frisbee golf together a couple times, right? That's right. As, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, we, uh, we, we didn't really do any masterminding while doing Frisbee golf, but, um, <laughs> it was still a lot of fun, man. Yeah. And so you were, you were there in the early days of, of my entrepreneur life and you've had a lot of influence on, uh, just inspire me right from the get-go uh you along with um sean noonan uh mark mason um and obviously jeremy and jason from internet business mastery so you know it's it's definitely been a long time since then so what have you what have you been up to i know you had some businesses and you were working you know in the philippines tropical mba all this stuff like what what's been going on yeah. So, I mean, at that time I was running this e-commerce business that sold valet parking equipment, mobile cocktail bars, and cat furniture. And right. I kept growing that business until 2015 when we exited, I mean, my business partner, Ian. And I've basically spent the last couple of years processing that exit and speaking with a bunch of entrepreneurs who've been through that process. Well, that's a dream, right? Like you build something, you exit, you get a a load of money and then and then life's good, right? One hundred percent. That's the posted about dream on the internet, but the reality isn't spoken about. And here's what I found, Pat, is that fifty percent of entrepreneurs who exit their business aren't just like a little bummed about it. They're uh, they're devastated about it. Really? And, yeah. And why don't we talk about this on the internet? Well, that's why I we're can, here. <laughs> that's why we're here. And. And, and I'll be the sacrificial lamb and come out and, and be the guy who's going to say, yes, we did. Someone did pay us a bunch of money, but there's a lot about this process that I wasn't ready for. And I wish I had known so many things before going through this. And I have some misgivings, some regrets, but today I don't want to dwell on all that. What I want to do is equip the audience with five thought experiments, um, sort of fun and profitable questions that they can ask themselves um, from day one. Even if you're just thinking about starting a business, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's going to exit, whether it's your choice or not. And it, what your exit plans are and what your personal financial goals are is going to affect the way that you run your business. And it's going to help you end up, uh, end up on the right side of that 50% divide. Because those aren't good odds. And you're not talking about something that you get to do 10 or 15 times in a career. We're talking about a handful of times at best. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a chance to exit a business. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing this with us because, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, we just kind of dive right in without really thinking a lot about this. And I think especially for the beginners in the audience, and there's quite a few of you, this is going to be a really important thing to think about. And I love thought experiments. I mean, the first few chapters of my book, Will It Fly, are all about thought experiments. So I'm, I'm interested in this too, Dan, because you know I'm building businesses, uh, physical product businesses, similar to sort of what you just talked about, and obviously the online stuff too. And some of those businesses are businesses that are created to potentially be a sellout. Um, SPI is obviously not one of those because I'm, I'm forever going to be tied to that brand. But other things, yeah. And so, I, I mean, honestly, I haven't done any research on this. My goal was to just like build big, grow fast, sell out and enjoy life. But now I'm wondering if that's <laughs> the right thing to do. And I'm wondering if actually maybe I shouldn't have done these businesses in, these businesses in the first place or, or trying to start. So let's, let's dive right in. Where, where do we start with this, man? 
Well, I think what we ought to do is like set the context for when you think about, hey, what's my business worth? Or I'm thinking about selling or I'm, I want to free up some mental RAM. I'm getting bored, which is actually a really common motivation is selling to solve problems, which end up existing on the other side of your exit anyway. So you're going to encounter like a whole professional services industry. And one of the lessons that I've learned is that they're focused on such a very small percentage of this total process of the exit. So their role is to uh, help you get the paperwork done, uh, help make sure everything's legal, make sure the process goes through the right steps. But if you're selling a business that's of any meaningful size, it could take two, three years of your life. And that's an, a huge emotional process that you're not going to be able to outsource to these professionals. And since it's pretty rare thing to do, relatively speaking, um, it's going to be hard to, to find this information. Like I'm saying, it's like absolutely critical to meet people that have been through this process and can share with you sort of the extent. So the punchline here, Pat, is unfortunately, you're not going to be able to trust the professionals because the professionals are on team deal. They're not going to be on team you having a great exit, mm-hmm. even if that's their sales pitch to you. Do, do these professionals have a name? Like, is, is there an industry that we can call them by? Or is it just like you're like attorneys and, you know, uh, escrow people and, you know, all the whole thing? I think the most important thing is the business brokers, because the business brokers get business by, you know, letting the market know that they're experts and how to create deals. Mm -hmm. And while that's true, they're not experts in you having a satisfying exit. Okay. So that's the values are very differently aligned. You might think of this like in the real estate marketplace, your real estate agent isn't uh, incentivized to help you maximize how much your home is worth. They're incentivized to make sure the home gets sold. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of, uh, uh, Nuances like seem obvious on the surface, but when you're in the process of two years, you're getting jerked around by different potential buyers and tire kickers, you're emotionally exhausted, and there's no one around you that's going through the similar circumstance, it's easy to call up your broker and to say, whoa, man, what's going on? And to believe everything they're saying, and you should listen. But the bottom line is, as with everything in business, you're ultimately responsible for how this goes. And part of the reason I wrote the book is to try to tell the stories of these entrepreneurs and say, look, like you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's time you have to take responsibility and have some enthusiasm for this project, even if the reason you got into it in the first place was because you're sick of running your business. Yeah. What, what's the name of the book? <clears throat> so the name of the book is called Before the Exit. Thought Experiments for Entrepreneurs. And I recommend uh, people thinking with the exit in mind uh, as they're starting, as they're considering what kind of business they want to get into. And uh, let me play devil's advocate there. There, there were, There's going to be people out there who are like, isn't it bad to think about exiting when you're starting a business? Aren't you setting yourself up for success or for, for failure? Like, does, doesn't that mean like you're not going to put your all into it because you're already out of it? What commonly the advice that follows is when people say, you know, consider your your business with the end in mind, is they'll say things like, um, make sure you build processes, make sure you're not baked into the business, you Mm -hmm. know, make sure your EBITDA or your net profit is maximized so that it's like all that stuff is such a small percentage of this. Actually, I think 
we our businesses are more important to us than we often realize. Like they're not just a way that we earn a living. It's not just how we pay the bills. Like these are our identities, our sense of service, yeah. uh, our community, our team, our tribe. And sometimes we we throw the baby out with the bathwater when we say, "Oh, it's just a it's just a way that I pay the bills." It's much more than that. And so in that sense, Pat, I think we ought to consider our values and what we're building from day one. So for sure, let. Why don't we look at some of these thought experiments and maybe we could, uh, you could see if it, it might be worth considering afterwards. Yeah, let's go into it. Okay, so the first one is called the lifestyle ladder. So you could pull out a sheet and you can construct what are the meaningful levels of cash in your personal bank account that make a difference in your life. So I can start by sharing some of mine. You can give me feedback whether they match up with yours. So sure. the, first, the first one for me is being in debt which is I'm a complete expert at that topic because I was in (laughs) debt for a great long time, probably when I met you. And the next step is being broke. Big difference there. Mm -hmm. For me, the next level was when I got on the Dave Ramsey train, financial freedom, and I got $20,000 to $40,000 in personal savings. Um, That was like a really big deal to me. Um, Now, the next level that I had an appreciable difference in my life was having six figures in savings and a business that gave me the cash flow. Now, something has emerged here that isn't, wasn't intuitive to me, which is that the amount of cash that you have isn't linear. It doesn't behave linear. So in other words, going from zero to $20,000 in your bank account is a life changer, but going from 20 to 40 isn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make much of a difference in your actual lifestyle. Now, why is this important? Because when you're thinking about selling an asset that you've built for three times earnings, that asset is an incredible platform to expose you to opportunities, um, to you know all the reasons we want to grow a business. That's an there's a lot of value there. But if you're going to exit it for a number that doesn't get you to an appreciable next level, uh, then you're sort of stuck in no man's land. And so the specific example in my case, Pat, and I don't want to define everybody's lifestyle ladder for them. That's up for everyone's personal financial goals. And I've right. asked a lot of people this question. It's like a fun cocktail party game, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, you know, what's your number? What's your freedom line? Like, what's the number you want to make in your life so that you can shelve financial questions for a lifetime? It's an interesting question. Um, for me, I thought a low seven-figure payday would get me to an appreciable next level. And the reality is, is that my life didn't change very much. And I gave up a big asset in order to get to sort of this no man's land level that's not quite to the level where I could do the sorts of things I thought I could, like maybe be an angel investor and make high risk investments or, you know, maybe put aside a career for a while and do other things. But I just didn't sit down and think about it in detail because people are waving around a lot of money in front of your face and it Mm -hmm. looks impressive. So there was like a a, a disconnect in what you had expected to happen versus reality after the sale. And here's the thing, Pat, it's like so easy. I'm talking about five minutes here, you know, just to sit down with, with your partner, with your best friend, whoever, and just say, Hey, let's take a look at it in detail. What does the reality of being an angel investor look like? Do you really want to be that? Mm-hmm. You know, does it is is having X amount of money really going to open up doors? And for some people, people like you say, if you're uh, a real estate age, if you're into the real estate game, getting a 
two to three million dollar payday would could potentially be a complete life changer from having that financial platform level I was talking about, which is six k and or six figures in savings. Right. So again, it's for everybody to figure out uh, what what that next level in their ladder is, and whether or not selling out of your business is going to help. Uh, get you to an appreciable next level. If not, you might consider holding on to it and taking advantage of the opportunities that it exposes you to. Right. I mean, I can even imagine going through a thought experiment where, you know, I have this next level that I want to reach. I get an offer potentially for a sale and I, I see that it doesn't get me there. So I know that internally, you know, this isn't really going to make a big difference. So then I hold off, but then I see that that next level is actually not too far off. So I can either renegotiate that deal or work a little bit harder, put things into place so that the valuation of the company is at that level, in, in which case then I would just know. I mean, I think what we're doing here is using the future essentially to remove the guesswork from any of this and, and to, to, to stop reacting and, and actually just start paying attention. 100%. And one of the things I said in the book is, uh, you know, the professionals around you are going to have a lot of dialogue about whether or not it's a good deal. But at the end of the day, all that matters is whether or not it's a good deal for you. And that's what we're, we're looking for here. So what were you feeling when you sold and you were like, well, this didn't – like what was, going, <laughs> what, what was going through your head? Well, it's just an interesting thing because um, originally I called the book The Devil's Advocate because it, like this idea of exiting your business is one in the entrepreneurial space that's universally lauded. You know, it's like the first line on your bio, exited for X amount yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And um, so I I didn't know what I felt, but I think in retrospect, I was sort of depressed about it, but I wasn't aware that I was depressed about it because it was this supposedly amazing thing. And so I just sort of drifted along feeling a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I started talking to people about this that I saw this whole world, this entire entrepreneurial conversation that's simply not being had. You had mentioned earlier that you felt perhaps a little bit of regret. Like, what was your what was the change in? I'm curious. Like, what was the change in your daily life, and did, did that affect you in any way? That's a good question. My daily life didn't actually change so much. It was more these soft values that I didn't think were that important because they were so general and large. Like things like legacy. Mm-hmm. I know you talk about that on the podcast and it's an appealing concept, but it it was never one that I like personally associated with, you know, things like service, community, um, identity. Like we had a great team. We, ha- we had so many great accomplishments mm-hmm. and those things were more meaningful to me than, than I thought they were. And, I, and it took me a long time to sort of peel through all that. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. No, I'm glad we're having this. You, you, in the online business space, Pat, this happens all the time. Is What happens is someone comes in and says, look, jobs are an inefficient way to make a living. We all nod our heads. That's true. They're, they're horrible time and money investments. So let's start a business. And you keep going down the path. The problem is, is that jobs do so much more for us. And let's use the word career. than just give us money. That's Fr- the thing. And that's the thing. That, yeah, and and like a sense of service, a mm-hmm. sense of identity, a, a sense of daily pride, a routine. Routine. You yeah. know, the thing is, you, you sell your business, and what's the, what's like the first sort of cliche image is that 
you're at some resort in Mexico and you're like, I made it. Yeah. Now what? <laughs> I was like, well, where did you make it to? You could have gone there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. Cause like one of the biggest struggles for entrepreneurs is getting back to where there is a schedule where they can start to finally start, you know, making sanity of their, their new, t- their, I mean, they're either overworking or underworking. They have no idea because there's no structure anymore. So it's, it, yeah, that is interesting. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So that thought experiment one, I love it. Now we're getting to a point where I can make decisions based on, you know, f- future pacing and what, what life would be like if kind of, kind of things. Uh, where, where do we go from there? So the number two thought experiment is called the mock, the mock tax rebate featuring the mediocre CEO test. <clears throat> oh, I'm sitting back in a t-shirt that says mediocre CEO, by the way. <laughs> um, so here's the idea. The idea is I was, as my business grew in scale, um, it's, it becomes easier to lose sleep over it as a founder, as a leader. You know, you worry about bad things happening to it. Like we worried about all the money that we had in our product inventory. We worried about another global financial crisis, as many homeowners do. You know, like what happens if we go through like what we went through in 2007 again? And um, the one thing that many people don't consider is that when you exit, you will go through a global financial crisis that's focused specifically on your asset, which is that you will pay enormous taxes and professional fees. So what I ask readers to do in this uh, a mock tax rebate, and again, you don't need to read the book to do this stuff. Sit down with a piece of paper and say, look, I'm just going to give you back a fraction of what you're going to pay if you sell this thing. So calculate out quickly your broker fee, which is often close to 10%. Uh, factor in your tax rate that you're going to pay on this. And say, what could you do with, with this money in your business? And again, a lot of people think of their businesses as their job, and that's part of the reason they want to sell them. It's like, man, this thing's getting old. It's like, but the moment you say I'm selling, you're thinking like an investor. So now we can step out of that role as the person who's anxious, who's working hard every day and saying, hey, let's have some fun with this thing. Mm -hmm. Here's free money because you're going to pay it anyway. So what are some things we could do? Well, uh, you could build a... uh, a positive charity initiative off the platform of your business. Right. I'm, you, I'm thinking how many schools in Ghana could you build? There you go. You know, instead of like giving into. it to a broker or whoever. 100%. And like, you know, the CEO, you might say, well, that's a bad business move. But investor, you can say, hey, we're going to lose 35, 40% on the sale anyway. So how about we take a 20% hit so the founder can pursue their passion? And who knows where that wow. leads? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So you could host these awesome retreats for your team. You know, you go, you march into your office or you say, Hey, everybody's going remote, whatever, like do the thing that's risky for, for three or six months and, and see where, where, uh, it, it leaves you. One founder I spoke to said very simply, you know, I wish I just would have left for a month because he was like, I made that decision for a lifetime. Like why on earth wouldn't I test it out for one month? And he said, he got so much perspective in that first month after he exited his business he had worked for a decade on. He's like, I didn't need to sell anymore, I felt like. I, I could have gotten all that, that insight by just stepping away for a month. Now, the mediocre CEO idea, CEO idea is simply this, which is very often it's the case that a business sale will return you three times your annual earnings. Mm-hmm. So you get three times net profit in your, in, your, in your bank account, you pay all those taxes, and you lose the asset. 
Now, why not hire a general manager, a CEO, someone who's ambitious? Maybe they're not as good as you. Maybe they're mediocre. So immediately mediocre CEO steps in and he loses half of your profits every year. So instead of three years, it'll take you six years to recover those profits. But think about all the advantages you could have there. You could still have the asset after six years. Um, Maybe mediocre CEO gives you enough time to focus on those new projects you thought you would be interested in. Or maybe instead, you start tinkering around and find new ways to improve the business. So again, just thought experiments. And maybe for folks just getting started out, you could say, you know, what if I didn't think of my business as my baby? What if I thought about it as an asset? And I gave myself some of some of some uh, latitude to run sort of exciting experiments. The, the the next steps in our business aren't always so obvious to us. Mm-hmm. And I, I've noticed for a lot of us, like that's when things get rough is when we look down at our next year's goals or plans and it feels like a lot more of the same. Yeah. And for many of us, we didn't become entrepreneurs because we wanted to have what feels like a job. Mm. Powerful. I really like that, uh, especially the mediocre. I mean, w- w- when you think about it that way, I mean, why not? <laughs> well, here's the thing, Pat. You know, the reason we sold our business was because our our number one guy came to us and quit. And we were like, oh, man, we can't replace this guy. This Your is going to be one horrible. Team member? Yeah. Our, 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 he had been there from the beginning. San Diego guy. He was great. And it broke our hearts. And we just felt like the the time it would take to replace him, it was just heartbreaking to us. Ian was going to have to cancel his summer in Mexico. You know, it wasn't, I was going to have to get on a long haul. So in our, in in an extreme display of naivete, we said, Hey, here's a bonus for you to stick around for a few months. We're going to put the business on the market. Well, if I would have done just a a small amount of research, I would have realized that if your business is worth over half a million dollars, you're not going to sell it in a few months. It's going to take you years to sell your business on average. And the reality is, is that we had uh, hired and fired a handful of people and trained replacements through that whole process. So my point here is that hiring someone to run your business is a lot easier and in my experience, a lot more fun and satisfying than selling it. Wow. Okay. Thought experiment number three. The hidden upsides. So are there hidden upsides in your business or platform that you might not be acknowledging? One of the reasons that people decide to sell is that they have three or four years of track record in business and they start to feel that they know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what the next year is going to look like. It's going to be more of the same. And I just think this is a fallacy. Even in the most boring businesses, your platform exposes you to so many opportunities. Um, in this chapter, I still tell the story of my friend, Brian, who's one of the most successful people I've ever met in terms of business and wealth. And he has this amazing ability to stay focused and interested and to use his business as a way to have fun. Even though fundamentally, it's kind of a boring business that does the same thing. It distributes scuba products. So one day he's at like a cocktail party and he bumps into a supplier who's like disappointed with his network of of stores. And they kind of cut a deal, but the guy's like, look, if you want to distribute my dive watches to your stores in the Philippines... Uh, you're going to have to write me a $25,000 check. So now based on everything Brian had known from years of experience in business, he, he felt that he would never be able to recover that investment. 
But for the sake of the replacement and for other opportunities, he was willing to write that check. Mm -hmm. What happened is that his purchases of dive, dive computers in the next two years, 12X'd. And he exposed himself to, from a wealth perspective, a life-changing opportunity that he couldn't have predicted based on what he, quote, knew about his business. So in this chapter, I'm, I'm encouraging, or in this thought experiment, rather, I'm just encouraging entrepreneurs to, there's, there's this glamorization of what's going to happen to you when you have cash and the experience of the exit, like you're going to all of a sudden be this amazing investor and mentor to people. Uh, the reality is, is that what's truly special is you, the entrepreneur. You've done something unique. The investors, they're, they're sort of painting up this cash position as this glory, uh, glorious position because they want to get your attention, because mm -hmm. they need you. You're the scarce asset. So a strange thing that I found is that Time and commodity, or time and cash, while there's nobody that doesn't want more, they're commodities. And your business and the opportunities that it exposes you to, that's truly unique. And those interactions can be explosive. So I rock up to some networking party, and I'm like just the next guy who has a couple bucks in his bank account. That's actually a much rarer situation to be like than Brian was in, the guy who had 16 stores in the Philippines. Now, all of a sudden, his interactions can take that next step of how can your platform interact with my platform and we can both win. So, I think that's like an ace up the sleeve that yeah. every entrepreneur has. Everyone has that. That's your platform. That's what you've built. But it's easy to start to devalue it after you sort of been around it for year after year. You know, mm -hmm. like, what's this old thing? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the opportunities, I mean, it's hard because you don't know that they're there all the time but like i'm imagining for example if i were to sell spi right and it, you know the spi comes with content and a certain number of traffic and you know i have customers and, and whatnot so i mean those things are there but spi has given me so many opportunities to you know meet amazing people who are now able to help me with some of my legacy goals related to education and school. It's allowed me to travel to places I would have never traveled before. It is, it allowed me to become more confident as, you know, a communicator. It has allowed you know, like all those intangible things that are actually like the really fun things. Um, not that 100%, I don't have I think everyone that's followed you has noticed that you weigh those more, than most public entrepreneurs mm -hmm. because of the way you've driven your brand. And you, you actually take pains, like every product that you launch, you always situate it in this, like this is actually bigger for me than like the transactional value of this product. And that is the fun stuff. And by the way, the best things in life, sorry to break it to everybody who wants to go out and make a bunch of money. You can't buy them, right? You can't buy respect from people. You can't buy self-confidence. Um, those, I don't want to get too in the woods about that stuff. That's everybody's I'm not here to be a, a, like a life guru. I don't know how to live a good life necessarily. I'm just saying like, that's up to everyone to decide. But right. the, if someone has a, puts a pile of money on your desk, it's not going to get easier to find the good stuff. Right. I mean, the classic examples are the people who win the lottery and then their lives just go to crap because of, <laughs> exactly. you know, essentially like money just amplifies more of who you are and kind of the kind of person you are. Um, so I think deep down those roots have to be there in serving and whatnot to 
anyway, yeah, you're right. We well, can't. here's an interesting question, Pat. So if we were to go back to the first thought experiment, there's this idea that Jason Cohn from A Smart Bear, the founder of WP Engine has, he calls it the freedom line. And that's the number at which you would shelve financial responsibilities for a lifetime. And this is an interesting question because it encapsulates a lot more than just your consumption habits. Um, it encapsulates the level of responsibility you're taking for your family's health, for those mm-hmm. around you's futures, their educations, all those sorts of things. Now, someone came along and gave you that number for SPI. It like that that number might put you in a legitimate bind. Do, do, is there any number that someone could put on your desk that would um, compel you to walk? No. Yeah. I mean, maybe people are like, really, Pat? Like, if somebody offered you a billion dollars, like, <laughs> maybe I mean, we'd have to think about it. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I'm I'm imagining all that I can do to help even more people with that kind of cash influx. But exactly, um, you know, even even at like, you know, my I I am so happy with where I'm at and how things are, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm way beyond the freedom line at this point. And like a, a huge influx of cash isn't going to change my life. Yep. Like I'm in, in that ladder you talked about. I'm 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 pretty pretty up high on the ladder. I know, uh, and I've worked definitely hard to get here. Um, but I also can extend the ladder for other people, not just myself too. So that that you know plays a role. That's as, that that plays a role as well. But you know, as far as far as for me in my life and cash, I mean it wouldn't change anything. Life would remain the same. I wouldn't get a different house. I wouldn't buy a different car. I wouldn't, you know, get different clothes or, you well, know. And again, you're, you're, you're amplifying this idea that this is not linear. So like the idea that you're pointing to this number, that's almost, it's almost a little bit awkward to say that number, but it might very well be the case that that's makes all the sense in the world, you know, because you're going, a lot of people are jumping from, you know, $100,000 in the bank to $10 million. Mm -hmm. That's the jump that a lot of people indicate in terms of what they value and what would be the next level for them. So, um, and again, this, you know, Pat, when I met you just a handful of years ago, we were all sitting down at day number one. Yeah, I mean, I was in survival mode. If anyone thinks this conversation isn't relevant to them, uh, think again, because the journey that we're on is is a long ball journey. And this is where you're headed. These are the sorts of judgments that you're making. Yeah, I mean, this is so great. I mean, I'm so thankful that you uh, are coming here to share this stuff so that we can all be just have a little bit more ammunition, you know, for what's coming (laughs) next. Because, I mean, obviously. Learn learn from my mistakes, Pat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we talked about three thought experiments. Uh, You got a couple more for us? I do. So, two more. Number four is called the cash conundrum. And this is the idea of what will you do with all of your cash. And since you want to cash out, it might make sense to start to identify the behavior of your cash and the types of investments you intend to make before you spend a couple years you know, investing in an exit process. Um, one of the things I've noticed, Pat, is that cash piles behave so much differently than cash flows. So cash piles are very... Uh, you say like they're vulnerable to the elements, like they're vulnerable to taxes, they're vulnerable to professional services, mm-hmm. your cousin who has a startup idea, medical emergencies, anything that comes up, that cash pile is just sitting right there waiting to contribute to whatever need, needs from it, you know? Right, right. On the other hand, you have these cash flows that are dynamic. You can sort of put ideas into them or you can 
you can evolve them to change to market conditions and they can continue to spin off capital in your direction on a month-to-month basis. So just like not all business models are created equal, like would you rather make 3500 bucks a month selling eBooks or $15,000 a month selling done-for-you podcasting services? For mm-hmm. me, I would choose the eBook route and then build that business up and have stuff on the back end of the eBook. It makes so much sense to me. And for everybody, their values are going to be different. Their skills are going to be different. Right. So um, there's this great book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I know you're familiar with. In the book, there's this definition of financial freedom, which is the, when your income from passive investments is higher than your monthly expenses. And I know a lot of us think about our online businesses this way. Like you might have a really good lifestyle. You know, you're working, you know, from 8 to 2 p.m. You're making, let's say, 6000 bucks a month and your expenses are four. You're putting two in the bank and you've got all these opportunities, all these things we've talked about uh, throughout the episode, opportunities you can do things with that asset. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to put that $6,000 a month business on the web and sell it for an industry standard rate, you would get $216,000 in your bank account, which would then get taxed. You'd have to pay brokerage fees and you'd have to sit it in that bank account and, and by the way, that's if your business is established and has many years of track record. We're not talking about something you cooked up in the last couple of years on Amazon. Right. So now all of a sudden you're staring at the 216000 that's been eroded by all the maybe financial, all the things we talked about. And you're like, oh man, I got to get back to work. Right. And you start to look back at the 6000 that was coming in every month and it was dynamic and flexible and other people could work on it. And you were like, man, that looked pretty good. That looks pretty good in retrospect. So again, something to think about. How will you invest your cash? Uh, do you have a specific plan for your cash pile? Because otherwise, they're very vulnerable. And investing is a very different skill set than the one that most of us have been investing in over the past many years, which is entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's huge. Um, that, that begins to get into, wow, like, how do I know which <laughs> one's the right one? And look, I definitely didn't write a book full of answers, Pat, for the clear reason that I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just simply asking the questions. Yeah, Um, which are important questions to ask. I mean, yeah, and and I think they're tough to come up with the answers, you know. And it's it's no wonder so many people get this stuff wrong because it's not like you have a lot of chances to practice. This is a one-off thing. Now, is this particular thought experiment something that? is on the scale of pretty painful for you or is this more of just in your research you've determined that this is something to worry about? Like, is this, are are you in in a cash conundrum? Well, yeah, I would say that because it's not like all that useful to me, right? Like, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with all this. Like, I don't have the skill set for it. And yeah, I mean, I could buy mutual funds or I could buy, I guess, real estate or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't really make like I, I, if I make high risk internet business investments, you know, I could easily flush it down the toilet. Uh, but I look back to my business. Remember, I was worried about that inventory in California. I was yeah. like, oh, so much of my cash is tied up in inventory. Pat, it returned me twenty percent year over year. I can't find an investment like that anywhere. So the the very thing I was worried about that I feared that investment that I had in that inventory 
turns out to be a no-brainer in retrospect. Um, so just just another way to think about it. It's, it's it's one of those things where you know you look at the other side of the fence and Correct. the grass looks greener. Of course. Well, thank you again for being vulnerable and honest here with us. I think it's so important because sure. It, well, I, mean, I haven't even gotten to the most vulnerable part yet, Pat. You're, well, I was going to say, is this thought experiment number, you save the best for last? I save the best for last. So this is the moment when it's like flip off the episode, you cool yourself down because it's about to get real. Okay. So have you ever heard of this thing called the Peter Principle? No. So the Peter Principle is this idea that in any organization, people get promoted to the level of their own incompetence, which explains pretty clearly why you're your last boss, you didn't like him very much. Because it's like, if for entrepreneurs, think of it like this. If you're good at running a six-figure business, you're very likely to proceed to the next level and be and run a seven-figure business. And so on until at some point you get to a level at which you've sort of topped out in terms of your ability to be successful. Mm-hmm. And this very often happens in corporate America. Um, so what I've noticed in the entrepreneurial space so I'll, I'll just tell my particular story. I, I knew we were at like three and a half million dollars in revenue. And I knew the next meaningful level for our business was to get to 10. And I would sort of look at the to-dos on my day-to-day and I'd be like, man, I don't really want to go to another trade show. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to like manage this team. You know, it's just like all the grumbling that I, I think a lot of us can relate to. Mm-hmm. I was bored. I was sick and tired of it. I felt like I knew what was around every corner. Now, this was me being incompetent. This was me being at the top level of my experience. I didn't know what to do. So I defaulted back on all the stuff I had done before, and I was bored by it. Someone who had some experience running a $10 million business or a $100 million business would come to me and say, are you crazy? You think you're going to get to there by how you got to here? Like, you can't just keep going to trade shows, man. You're going to get the same results, you know? And so I didn't have an open mind to that stuff. I sort of thought I knew everything about my business. I thought I was the expert. And that arrogance that I had was, a, I think, a, a manifestation of this Peter principle of like my own incompetence rationalizing itself mm-hmm. as, strangely enough, expertise and boredom. That's so interesting. So what, in retrospect did you wish you did instead? Well, I wish I would have run a lot of these mind-opening thought experiments we talked about earlier. Like, I I would have loved to have brought in new leadership into the business and worked with them and cultivated a culture instead of maybe grinding it out day-to-day. One of the pieces of advice I heard Seth Godin give a woman who had this same problem, she's like, hey, I have a $10 million business. I want to get to $100 million. He said... Well, hire somebody to run your business and go work for a $100 million business. See how, it, see how it operates. And apparently, as the story goes, this worked out for her. And she was able to achieve her goals. And what I love about this is I believe entrepreneurship is a know-how. It's like riding a bike. It's not something you can read about and then do. You, of course, reading about it can inspire you to do things. Mm-hmm. But... It's, it's an experience. It's like you know how to be an entrepreneur. And the way you learn it is by doing it. And so I love this piece of advice he gave because it's like, hey, go actually do work that expands what you're capable of. Stretch yourself, you know? Um, 
my last boss, my me- business mentor did this for me. I remember he put me in charge of his business and he used to stack papers so high on my desk. And I would say, this is impossible. And he would look at me and say, we got to get it done. <laughs> but I learned, I learned through that experience. And I think when I was in my own business, Pat, mm-hmm. I wasn't willing to push myself that hard. And, you know, it is what it is. That's a shame. Here's the other question. Of- yeah. Why weren't you satisfied at three? Why, why did you feel like you had to go to 10? Well, it wasn't, and that's a great question too. I mean, I didn't have clarity on it. That's all. I didn't have this dialogue. Um, one of the reasons we thought to get to 10 is that's when businesses become an acquisition target for institutional money. And so there's a backdrop to all this, which is businesses between half a million dollars and about $10 million. And that 10 million is going down as technology changes, but they're pretty hard to sell relatively speaking, because you got to have cash investors. Whereas when you get to a larger scale, all of a sudden brands are interested in you, institutional investors, private equity firms, things like that. Got it. So Getting to 10 was a chance for us to have a truly life-changing amount of wealth on our hands. So that's one goal, but it's not the only one. I mean, we enjoyed running our business. We had cool products. We had a cool, quirky team, sort of very much in our image, you know, not mm-hmm. the average people working at a California e-commerce business. And um, so I don't know, Pat. I don't know uh, I mean, the, exactly. The, the, the reason I'm asking this question is because we and I don't know if this is just human nature, but we, we I mean, everybody wants to grow. No, nobody has, I've never spoken to anybody who has said, yeah, like I make this much and that's cool. And I continue to stay there. Like we all want more. <laughs> and I don't know if maybe that's the problem or maybe, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. That's, uh, I've met people that, that it's interesting have you seen I've one met before? People that don't want more. Yeah, I've met people in the wild who don't want more. There's, they're a rare animal. <laughs> well, a lot of times people will nominally want more, but they're not willing to actually sacrifice what it would take to get more. 100% so, agree, yes. Um, this brings me to a few other dirty secrets that I wrote down. Okay. So one of the things, um, Pat, when I first met you, me and you were total hustlers, man. That's you were a hustler, man. You would come in with the eye of the tiger. You were working hard. I was. And so was I. And we all related to each other in that. Now, we were also in our 20s and had relatively few responsibilities. Um, now, I know your level of responsibility has changed dramatically. Now, you've got a family. you got interests, all the stuff that we were like in vacuum the house now. <laughs> exactly. When we were in our 20s, we were like, I got to do this thing. <laughs> you know? And so... What happens to entrepreneurs is both they look back on rose co- as with rose-colored glasses at this time period in building their business, and they forget how much energy it took them. Like I worked two shifts a day for four years. I can't do that now. I got too many other responsibilities. I'm not motivated in the same way I was. And part of that, the reason we make that miscalculation is sometimes we can we can conflate too much the success of our business with how good of an entrepreneur we are. Now, this is going to be different in every case, and I don't know, I'm not the person to judge this, but we've all seen online people that have sold their businesses with big future plans, and then pretty much nothing happens. 
Like that was their one shot because they had the energy, they had the dedication, they had the vision or, or the timing or the luck. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I remember talking to DHH, uh, the founder of Basecamp about this. And he's like, I don't want to be in my 20s again. Like, I don't want to work like that again. And who knows if I would ever hit it again in the way. So, and I don't know how to answer that question, but it's certainly something to consider about. Are you over, you know, conflating that, that success that you hit on? I mean, if I look back at my track record alone, I've probably launched like, I don't know, 50, 60 projects with the hopes of them being a business. Mm-hmm. Right now I have one. I have one business, exactly one <laughs> out of 60. Yeah. So, you, you know, you're signing yourself up to go through that process again if you haven't hit that, you know, freedom line where you're either in a resort in Mexico or you're a professional philanthropist. Man, this has been an eye-opening conversation, especially helpful for me as I continue to obviously grow the businesses I have, but also I like starting new things. I like experimenting. And, you know, all these are questions I have never really considered in that in that way. And so I hope that all of you listening are encouraged by this, not not deflated by it. And I think, <laughs> you know, we, we should all, like, just know that this is a thing. And so Dan's opened it up, and, and I'd love to continue this discussion in the comment section uh, on the blog. I'll give you the show notes link in just a moment. But, um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on here. And any, any final piece of advice for everybody listening, you know, now that you've known what they've listened to, like, what should they do from here? Like, what, what I mean, you gave us these thought, these thought experiments, which are fantastic, but, like, what's one thing we could do to, to better position ourselves for a happier future? Absolutely. Well, leave that part of your space. These thought experiments are designed to open up that investor side of your brain, which is, yeah, you're the founder. Yeah, you're passionate. Yeah, you're growing your baby. But on the other hand, it's also an asset in your portfolio, you know? And so leave space in your week to think about your asset that way. And it can free you up to do interesting things on the entrepreneurial side as well. So that's that's number one. Number two is a lot of people start to think about selling when they're getting bored, they're getting anxious or, or bad things are happening. And what I encourage everyone to do is to, if you do decide to sell or start to explore it, dive into it with the same enthusiasm that, that you had when you started your first business. It can be an exciting process. And if you don't, you know, every... Uh, every time, you know, Pat, that I didn't have my eye on the ball through this process because I was disengaged, mm-hmm. I've paid for it on the back end. You know, that's just life. And so had I go- been able to go back, um, I wish I just would have had a lot more fun with it and got more engaged with the process. Uh, I think I would have been more satisfied in the long run. But honestly, Pat, writing this book has been a really cathartic experience. And uh, well, thank you for it, writing it. Where, where can people go and grab it? Yeah, so you can just uh, Google Before the Exit by Dan Andrews. I do have, uh, on my website, I have a book resources page. So it's tropicalmba.com slash book resources. So you you don't even really need to read the book if you get the gist of what I'm saying, but you can listen to interviews uh, of the woman who bought our business, our initial thoughts after selling it. So we have like a bunch of audios that you can listen to. If you're deep in this process, I highly recommend you uh, check out all these audios we have up there for free. Just go check it out. Cool, man. Hey, we'll have all the links on the show notes page. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and opening up for us and um, allowing us to consider these really important questions for our future. Uh, I can't thank you enough. 
My pleasure, Pat. And by the way, a 100% open invite anytime you're willing to come by the Tropical MBA podcast. Please do so. Oh, dude. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll figure it out. Awesome. Ciao. Thanks, man. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan Andrews from tropicalmba.com and author of Before the Exit, Thought Experiments for Entrepreneurs. Thought Experiments are one of my favorite things to do. I'm so glad more people are using this as a tool to help us entrepreneurs out there. So great job, Dan. Thank you. And I appreciate you coming on and being honest and vulnerable uh, through what you've been going through so that we can all benefit from that. So I appreciate you for that. Go ahead and check out the book. Again, it's called Before the Exit. You can find it on Amazon or at the show notes, obviously, at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 329. One more time, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash session 329. Cheers, thanks so much. And I look forward to serving you in the next episode of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.